0: Luke chapter 3, verse 1, let's hear the Lord's word. Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Idria, and of the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priests, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. And he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance. And begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid under the root of the trees. Every tree therefore which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. And the people asked him saying, What shall we do then? He answereth and saith unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. Then came also publicans to be baptized, and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed you. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. And as the people were in expectation, and all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not, John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will throughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. Many other things in his exhortation preached he unto the people. And God will bless that reading for his name's sake of his word. Let's all bow for a moment in prayer. Let's seek the Lord for his help. Father in heaven, we come yet again to the mercy seat for thou dost know that we need thy help. And thou art the helper of the helpless. Come and help thy servant to preach those unsearchable riches of Christ. Give to thy people those hearing ears. They will gladly, gladly take on whatever the Lord has to say to them. Just, Lord, leave us not to empty religion. Leave us not to a prepared sermon that has no fire upon it of God himself. Leave us not to a polite listening to the word, but no receiving of it into our hearts. Prepare us now, we pray, to preach and to hear the word. In Christ's name, amen and amen. My text is found in the middle of verse 16. John said, But one mightier than I cometh. One mightier than I cometh. The age which John the Baptist was called to preach the gospel, was marked by exceptional darkness and degradation, morally, politically, and religiously. The opening verse of this chapter gives us a list of Roman rulers who, according to secular historians, were infamous for their wickedness which included everything from drunkenness to murder. You wonder why there was this list of names. There's a reason the Holy Ghost setting the scene for the arrival of John the Baptist, just how the days were when he came to preach Christ. On the religious front, things were bad. Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, and both of these men reflected the whole spirit of the Pharisees of John's day. They looked good on the outside, but inside they were full of dead men's bones. They had developed the sin of hypocrisy into a fine art. They were masters at deception. Apostasy was rampant when John appears on the scene of time. Such was the state of things when God called John to preach this message, when he called him to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus Christ. We we should learn from this, just this opening part of chapter 3. We should learn that we never need despair for God's cause, no matter how black and hopeless things may appear. It seemed pretty bleak in John's day when he appeared as God's servant. No matter how corrupt the government or how apostate the visible church may be, at the very time when the kingdom of Satan seemed to be trampling God's people and the the cause of God under his feet, it may well be that God is preparing the way for Christ to visit his church again, with His presence and power and crush the powers of hell. I was struck with this recently, when I've begun once again to read through uh, Dalamore's biography of George Whitfield when he began to describe how things were in England when God came with that great awakening and used Wesley and Whitfield to turn things around. It was bleak, it was black, as you can imagine. But it wasn't too hard for God. It's an old saying, you know. It's still true. It's the darkest before the dawn. Therefore, you want to always beware of slacking off when The work of God, because of wickedness that you have to face, we seem to be so outnumbered by the enemy. We must work on and pray on. And we must, it comes down to this, brothers and sisters, we must believe. We must believe that God will send help from heaven when it is needed most and when it is wanted most. In the very hour when a vile Roman emperor and two ignorant priests seemed to have everything at their feet, the Lamb of God was about to step into the scene of time and bring utter defeat to the kingdom of Satan. What he has done once, he can do again. In a moment, the Lord can turn midnight into the bright blaze of the noonday sun. In a moment. You must believe that. As a matter of fact, it's just that very truth that I want to speak to you about this morning and, God willing, next Lord's Day morning. I want to speak again, both times about the coming of Christ. I'm not referring to his first advent, when he came as a servant, nor to that second advent, when he will come as the sovereign. But I want to speak to you this morning, as we come to the close of this year, and stand at the threshold of a new year, about the spiritual coming of Christ to his church the spiritual coming of Christ to his church, to his people. I mean those seasons when Christ, to use Old Testament terminology, visits. He visits our hearts. He visits our homes. He visits our churches, and in that visit, he does a work in us and through us and among us, so that we are never the same again. You find in the Old Testament passages, those scenes taking place where God hath visited his people. Back in the book of Ruth, she went off, of course, suffered because of the, the, the famine in the land. They go off to Moab, and they hear that there's bread back in Jerusalem, Bethlehem, the house of bread. God had visited his people. He had brought blessing to them again. That's what I'm referring to when I say I want to deal with the spiritual coming of Jesus Christ to his people. So what what I want to ask you, a few questions. What, What kind of year has it been for you? Not on the financial front. Not on the political front not on the job front, what kind of year has it been for you on the spiritual front? Did you grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ? That's the very last thing that Peter says in his second epistle to God's people. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Once you have that commandment in scripture, it automatically implies that there has to be a way of measuring that. How can you answer that question? My question to you, have I grown in grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ? How can I know if I've done that or not, if there's not some standard of measuring that? You you, you can't say, well, yes, I, I have grown in grace and in the knowledge of Christ have you during the past year did your prayer life deepen it was your growth did your understanding of the gospel deepen That it has a, a, a deeper impact upon how you live at the end of this year as opposed to the impact it had on you at the beginning of the year. Did your life have more influence with those around you this past year than the year previous? More influence among the lost and among God's people has the influence grown do you approach this coming new year with a greater hunger for Jesus Christ a deeper desire to live on a higher spiritual plane it's always good Uh, particularly at the end of a year, to take inventory. Uh, I'm not one who advocates by any stretch of the imagination that you go around every day with your hand upon your spiritual pulse to see how you're doing. A life of that kind of constant introspection will drive you crazy. It will drive you into despair and spiritual depression. I'm, I, I tell you that now that it, I would never advocate that. I would preach against it constantly, bombarding yourself, introspection, introspection, introspection. Having said that, I'm also one who believes there's time to stop and take inventory. Where am I at the end of this year? My life, my walk with the Lord, my prayer life, my my usefulness, my influence. In my family, in the work of God, in the church, in the world out there, wherever it might be. Well, there's there's one way in which all of those desires can be brought to pass. Christ coming to us. Christ coming to us. As far as I'm concerned, this is the one thing needful. For our denomination, for our individual churches, for your home, for your heart. It doesn't matter where you are spiritually, where you are financially, where you are physically, our need for this year is for Christ to visit us. To come among us in Pentecostal power. Yes, He will never leave us or forsake us. I get that. He's always with His people in every age. They're His people. He's with them. It wasn't just New Testament saints that got the promise, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. The Lord has always been the shepherd of His people. They could always say, I shall not want. But even in the midst of that, you find God coming amongst His people, visiting His people. You find the Old Testament saints praying that God would come down and visit this vine. Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens and come down... And cause the mountains to flow down at thy feet. You see, that, that's what you, you read here in Luke chapter 3. As John would come and prepare the way, the, 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 the mountains will be made plains, all those obstacles in the way of receiving the blessing that Christ would bring would then be dealt with by the coming of Christ. And that's where we are. That's what we need. There's a manifestation. There is a revelation, there is a display of that presence and power of Jesus Christ that we need, like never before, to cry to God to give to us. Therefore, if you really want change, lasting change in all these areas, then there's a word here for you. The title of my message is very simple When Jesus Comes when The Lord delivered me from a very deeply backslidden state I had to flee my hometown because of all the temptations and went off to Greenville and started attending Bob Jones and I was staying with my brother living in a trailer with he and his two children and I I was wakened one morning, my first morning there, to hearing Lester Olof in his radio program. Mons sat alone, beside the highway begging. His eyes were blind, the light he could not see. He clutched his rags and shivered in the shadows. Then Jesus came. Bad the darkness flee. Never forgotten that. That's what I want to deal with. When Jesus comes. What happens? What happens when Jesus comes? What happens to a soul, to a family, to a church? When Jesus comes to it and, and manifests. He shows he's there and he reveals his presence amongst people and his power. To make it more pertinent, what will happen to you if Christ comes to, he visits your heart and your home and your church this incoming year? The answer to that question is really found simply by looking at what happened when Christ came the first time. Lessons are there. What changes took place? For Christ always brings chains when he comes, when he visits. First, four or five things I want to bring out. The devil was defeated when Jesus came. The devil was defeated. For 400 years, God had been silent. There was no prophet, nothing from heaven. The last voice that was heard was Malachi, and Satan imagined, "I, I can only imagine. He imagined that God was through with Israel, and he was having a heyday. When Christ appeared on the scene of time, uh, demon possession was rife, particularly in the northern kingdom of Israel. Wickedness, as I've already pointed out, abounded everywhere Politically, religiously, morally, it was just a a wicked time. And Satan's kingdom was advancing more and more. but, But then Jesus came and spoiled all of his plans. Just after his baptism, Christ was tempted of the devil in the wilderness. And Satan came at him. With all that he had, but that prince of hell was soundly defeated. Why? Because there was one stronger than the strong man. There was one who came who was no match for Satan. No match for his devices. No match for his temptations. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this is still what happens when Jesus comes amongst his people. When he visits a home. When he visits a heart. When he visits the church, whatever the plans of Satan have been, whatever he has sought to accomplish, and maybe has accomplished, there's no reply, there's no comeback when Jesus steps into the scene. That you can count on. You can rest assured of one thing. Satan has plans for you, if you're God's child. The word of God reveals that Satan actually has a prayer life. Did you know that? What did did the Lord, just before going to the cross, when he had those disciples in that upper room, what did he tell Peter? Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you, that he might sift you. As we, That word desired is that common word he's asked for you. He's come to the Father and he's asked for you because he thinks you're chaff, you're phony, you're not the real deal. And he's been praying to God. He's been asking God for you. Oh, Satan has a prayer life. He has plans to ruin your prayer life, to make it non-existent as much as he can, to keep you away from praying, to keep you away from the Word of God, he has plans to ruin your testimony. He's looking for the opportunity that you would fall flat on your face and do so much damage to your testimony that you'd be years recovering it. He has plans to ruin your usefulness to God and to this church. Perhaps 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 you have to confess that this past year seemed to be one of victories of the devil in your life, in your marriage, in your children's lives. But when Jesus comes, all of that changes when he comes. He exerts his own grace and frustrates all of those plans that Satan has. You see, what I'm telling you, because of this truth right here, Jesus coming, this incoming year does not have to be a repeat of last year. In all those areas, as perhaps the questions, and they were very pointed questions for a reason, those questions are raised in your mind, well, you know, I really did not succeed too well at that one. Well, the fact is, this year, incoming does not have to be like last year. So the devil was defeated. That happens when Christ comes. Secondly, deceivers were uncovered. That happens when Jesus comes, he visits his people. Deceivers are uncovered. You see, Jesus Christ came as the truth, and as such, by his very coming, he would expose the lie and uncover the darkness, shine light into the darkness. All of this would be vital to God's work of redemption. The, the bringing of light into darkness. The, 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 the truth of the gospel must always be set in contrast to the lies and the subtleties of the false gospel in any day that's being taught. And certainly the gospel, quote-unquote, of the Pharisees was a false gospel. It wasn't good news at all for anybody. And they had to be exposed. Christ came to put things right. Including all of the perversions and misinterpretations and false teachings of the religious teachers of that day. Jesus came and put things right. And the rats, the rats who liked their darkness, were scurrying away from the light. That's why they crucified him. He shone upon their dark deeds. And they hated him for it. He uncovered the deceivers. He took off these. These these masks that they were wearing so well and they had worn for so long. He told the people plainly and on more than one occasion that the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers were hypocrites. They're actors. They're not real. They're liars. They're leading people to hell. They're not telling you the truth. To put it plainly, Christ pointed out the apostates of his day, the deceivers of his day, and he did so publicly and pointedly and persistently. He did that. He did not shy away from it. Why? Because he is truth. He must do that. Because he loves the truth. Because he loves his people. Because of his hatred for all that is false, when Jesus comes, he must show, uncover the darkness. Christ was not willing for one moment to sit down and negotiate with them. He wasn't going to try to sit down and figure out. Well, let's, come, let's find out where we can agree, at least on something, and work it out. He denounced them from the very beginning. And he kept warning his own disciples to beware of them. You see, there are many who have been deceived by present-day false teachers present-day Pharisees, present-day apostates. Their words sound so good, their motives seem to be so pure, but they preach another gospel. They lead people to believe a lie, and for that they're condemned by Christ. And they must be exposed. They must be uncovered. And that's just what happens every time Jesus has come to his people. The lies that even his own people had believed about sin, about what is sin, about what pleases and displeases the Lord their confusion about what's right and what's wrong. He comes, and he sheds light on it all, and eyes are opened. You would expect that when he who is truth itself visits a home, visits a heart, visits a church. You see, there's the acknowledgement already that change needs to be made, You know, when Jesus comes and he manifests his truth, and and it's not just the, here are the truths of God's word, here are the truths of God's law, here are the truths of the gospel. They're actually joined with power. It's one thing to hear a sermon, you know, that might be ever so accurate and orthodox theologically and state the plain truths of the gospel, but when it's joined with the power of Christ's Spirit, my, what a difference it makes! eyes are opened up and hearts are moved upon and now it's not, it's, it's not my brother or my sister but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer I'm the one that needs to hear this I'm the one that needs to change and my eyes go off of other people and all their problems and all their faults and now it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer it's me, Lord, it's me that's what happens when Jesus comes he uncovers the darkness the ignorance light shines in Apostates have no answer when Jesus comes. Or if I can harken back to Mount Carmel, the apostates of that day had no answer when the fire fell. There was no answer. There was no comeback. They were silent in Elijah's day. And they will be silenced. In our day, when Jesus comes, there is just no answer you know when you see a child of God, a spirit-filled life, walking in harmony with God, with Christ. There's no answer. They see the change. They hear it in the conversation, in the pursuits. That person has changed. Counterfeits are brought to light when Christ comes to his people. A third thing that happened when Jesus came, it will happen when he comes to this day. Disciples were made when Jesus came. Disciples were made. Whenever Christ comes, he always is sure to make disciples. Because the leader is going to have his followers, and the king will have his subjects. You would expect this. When Christ came, one of the first things that he did at the beginning of his ministry was to call out certain men to be his disciples. This one who held the universe in his hand, he deigned to carry out his work through human instrumentality. You and me. Disciples real disciples of Christ, it seems, are so few and far between. This is an age of ease and comfort. With God's people seeming to get as comfortable as they can in this world. To avoid as many troubles, and trials, and uh, challenges, and sacrifice, as they can. Not willing to take up the cross, to deny self, and to follow the Master. And as I was praying, the thought occurred that it's even in the little things that we take up the cross. But when there's a reticence to do the little things, those little acts of self-denial, where I'm going to put myself on the cross, I'm going to die to this, It's only a little thing. It's then that we get prepared for bigger things. The church needs real disciples. Those who are, they see it, they're ready and they're willing to sit at Christ's feet to hear his words, to study his life to imitate his ways. We're living in a day of what I would call plastic disciples. Many Christians know the terminology of Christian discipleship. They know the theory, but they don't know very much about the experience of what it is to leave all to follow him. But you know something, brothers and sisters, that all changes when Jesus comes among his people. It just changes. The master has stepped in. The master. And the heart and the mind the soul beholds him as the master. I am the servant. All he had to do when he stepped on the scene of time was say to men, follow me. And they left all and followed him. It's so easy to read those words. But to leave everything, to follow him. Why? Jesus came. It made all the difference in the world. When Jesus comes, there will be no need to cajole, to beg, to plead, or to guilt Christians into following the Lord, to being his disciples. The need will not be there. You will want to be. You will be like Paul when his eyes were opened on the road to Tarsus. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? That's it. That's it. Jesus came into his life. Once he revealed himself to Paul as, I am Jesus Christ whom you're persecuting. Immediately, the first thing out of his mouth, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? I'm your disciple. Do you not think it's a time when the church needs to see real disciples? Not plastic ones. Not who are in name only. But this kind of discipleship that follows the Lord fully. It was said of Caleb, at the end, he's followed the Lord fully. You see what makes the difference? They saw Jesus. They saw him. They beheld him. And that's what happens still. Well, we don't see the physical body. That'll come one day, and then we'll be like him. But we still see Him with the eye of faith, the sight of Christ, that, that looking off unto Jesus, we act, our eyes are opened up, the spirit of God who's been given to us, to show us the things of Christ that have freely been given to us. That's His great work to show us Christ. He shows us Christ. We see the Lord, and my, everything changes when we see Him. There's the fourth thing that happened when Jesus came. Diseases were healed. One of the salient features of Christ's earthly ministry was that he healed those who were sick of all kinds of diseases. He himself said that he had been sent to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. So this great physician comes on the scene of time and he brought with him this power to heal the the worst of diseases. It's just the same when Jesus comes to His people today. No, I have not gone off into the charismatic movement and praying, preaching about healing. Send me your thousand-dollar check, and I'll give you a bottle of holy water. No, nope. but there are, you see, these diseases that break the heart and they bind the soul with chains. And they need healing. There's heart disease. Love has grown cold. There's a hardness. There's a lack of tenderness to Christ, a lack of tenderness to His Word. Nothing seems to move you when you have heart disease like this. A heart that's broken because of sin and failure. Sorrow, sorrow is the order of the day. Joy has departed. You're not really happy. Well, you laugh, you laugh, but deep down, you're not really happy. There's also the disease of blindness that strikes the Lord's people when they need Jesus to come, when they need change. There's this inability to see Christ. Telling someone to look unto Jesus is like, it's empty. It doesn't doesn't mean anything. It doesn't doesn't faze them. There's a blindness to the, the needs of the heart. As it was in Revelation 4, the church of Laodicea. They thought they were fine, doing just well. And yet the Lord said, you don't see that you're poor and blind and miserable and naked. You don't see that you're lukewarm. That was blindness. When you're blind, this this, this disease, this spiritual disease of, of blindness for the child of God, there's this inability to walk by faith. The ironic thing is you walk by sight. That's what you see with literally with your eyes. That's how you read everything. I'm walking by sight. But walking by faith requires seeing the invisible. And then you're able to count your burdens light, your afflictions light. They're momentary, they're not long. I've got glory coming. I can get through this. With Christ, I will will get through this, and it's all going to be fine. Because I know how this is going to end. I've read the last chapter, it's going to be fine. That's a walk by faith. You have to have the eye of faith to see those things, to look into the heavenlies. But when you have blindness here, you just can't see that. All you can see is the problems and what's wrong. So you have the plague of doubts and fears and worry and anxiety and depression and even despair. Blindness needs to be healed and you can no more you can no more heal that blindness yourself any more than that man born blind could heal his blindness on the earth he came and he healed lameness and there is a lameness that the Lord still heals you know I'm talking about lameness in your wall. Elijah brought this up again. How long halt ye between two opinions? One foot in the the world and one foot in uh, the the religion of Jehovah? And you can't do that. Your own personal walk is not right. When this disease has come upon you, you, uh, you walk at a distance from Christ. Your conduct is unbecoming It's the name of Christian or little Christ. Deafness is another disease, spiritual, dull of hearing. That's what the apostle had to write to the Hebrew Christians. you become dull of hearing. You've got to be taught the first principles of the oracles of God. You should be teachers by now, he said, but you've become dull of hearing. You hear, but you don't hear. You hear the sermon, but you don't hear the message in the sermon. There's this this, this, this insensitivity to the voice of Jesus Christ. Of course, there's the other disease that the Lord Jesus took care of when He came, and that was many were dumb. That's the disease that keeps the tongue silent. Silent when it should pray, and and silent when it should praise, and, and silent when it should stand up and defend God's people, and defend the cause of Christ, silent when it should witness and testify, yet it is like, lips are sealed. When Christ comes, He heals us of these diseases. And He's the only one who can. You want to know what will make such a difference? in your own life where you become a living witness for Christ. You, you, you have a, a living burden for your neighbors that will actually move you to pray continually for their salvation. That will actually move you to pray for God to so open that door of opportunity that you might actually speak to them about their need of the Lord. It's Jesus coming and healing the disease of dumbness. It'll totally change your prayer life. You, you won't, you, 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 you'll pray and you'll pray. He's the only one that can heal them. It's like that case with the woman with the issue of blood. She had tried to spend all her money, all the doctors, and they couldn't heal her. But when she came to Jesus, that was it. All is chains when Jesus comes. Fifthly, darkness fled when Jesus came. Darkness fled. Matthew 4. You find Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, is being quoted by Matthew about the first coming of Christ. The people which sat in darkness saw great light, and them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. Of course, there's a reference to the moral darkness that was actually in the world at that point in time. And the light of the world came. And when Jesus came, he delivered men from that darkness they were in, spiritual, utter darkness, and brought them into his marvelous light. And that still happens. It happened in the Great Awakening. It's happened in every revival that's ever come to God's people. In any day and age, there has been an awakening among the lost. They've been brought from darkness into light. That's the long and the short of it. Always happens. Always happens. But I believe there's a special reference in this prophecy to the darkness that comes from the calamities and the dark clouds of providence, the midnight seasons that afflict the church. When Jesus comes, well, if I can take the words of the psalmist in Psalm 80, he causes his face to shine. They were in a dark time. The enemy was taunting them. It was bleak. It was bad. The heads had been torn down. Cause thy face to shine and we shall be saved. He brings an end to the night seasons and the days of gladness come upon the Lord's people. When Jesus comes, Our mouths are filled with laughter and our tongues with melody because the darkness has been lifted. To quote Isaiah, when Jesus comes, he gives to his people, beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. A happy people are a God-glorifying people. Always remember that. Sixthly, and finally, the dead are brought to life. The dead are brought to life. When Jesus came, you know, death could not go on in his presence, whether it was the daughter of Jairus, the widow of Nahan's son, whether it was Lazarus, the prince of life was the death of death. Let me remind you that these miracles of bringing the dead back to life were not an end in themselves. They were object lessons to teach the people about salvation, the gospel of bringing the dead who are spiritually dead unto life. And you see those lost sinners who you work with every day, who are around you and your neighbor in the market, whatever it might be. They are just dead. They're just dead to sin, and you can't expect them to act like they're alive because they're dead. They don't get it. They don't understand. Unable to raise themselves from that death. But when Jesus comes, he just speaks the word and they come to life. They're born from above. And that's going to happen every time Jesus comes among his people, the dead will be brought to life. There's a vast graveyard that surrounds us. The living dead, they pass by us every day. They walk on in darkness. They have no light to brighten their tomb. As Paul says, they're without hope in this world. But when Jesus comes to visit his people the dead are brought to life. When Jesus comes, souls are saved. Why is that? True conversion will be the order of the day. Why is that? Not a rarity, once in a blue moon, but it will be the order of the day when Jesus comes. Why? Because when Jesus comes, He always changes his people into fishers of men. They finally lift up their heads and look under the fields and see they are white and ready to harvest. They finally see that, they see men and young people and children as never dying souls. They finally find this compassion welling up in their hearts. This pity for them. It doesn't matter how long they have lived in their sin, how black and, 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 and mucky their life has been. These people, these lost, vile sinners, are not beyond the power of the gospel. They need saving, just like I needed saving one day. And someone had enough compassion on me to tell me that there was a Savior who would save them from their sins. You won't won't be content with letting others go their merry way to hell when Jesus comes. But you will find yourself weeping for them Weeping for your lost children. Weeping for your lost neighbors. Praying for God to make you that witness that you know you can be and you need to be. Here's why the dead are raised to life when Jesus comes in every revival, there's always been a great ingathering of the lost. Because God's people have come alive. It's going to take the coming of Christ afresh if we're going to see the dead raised to life. If you're going to see the dead raised to life here it's going to take that. It's what happened 2,000 years ago. It's, It's still what happens to this day. It's about change. Change that lasts more than a Sunday service or a week or a month or a year but change that lasts A whole lifetime. So, is this the kind of change you want? Is this the kind of change you want for your own heart? For your family? Is this the kind of change you want for this church? I simply want you to be honest with yourself and with the Lord. Do I see my need for this kind of change? Do I really want change? Am I willing to be changed? Am I ready to say to the Lord, Lord, please change me whatever the cost. Whatever. When Jesus comes, the tempter's power is broken. When Jesus comes, the tears are wiped away. He takes the gloom. And fills the life with glory. For all is changed. When Jesus comes to stay. May God write his word on our hearts for his own sake. and For the sake of his work. Let's bow our heads in prayer and seek him together. Father in heaven it is in that blessed name of Jesus Christ. That we come to thy throne. At the end of this message. And we pray that thy spirit. Well, preach on to us all, for we confess we all need this change. We need a visitation from Thee, Lord. Give it, we pray. Do that work that is necessary. Heal us, we pray, of the diseases. Grant, Lord, that we will be a people who glorify thee because Christ has come to us and changed us forever. In his name we pray. Amen and amen.